daily dose of exercise with And Your Ass Will Follow, hosted by Kristen Summerall today. Uh, and I know she knows how to work out if she can fit into those tight pants every week on Friday. Um, and I know everybody just like totally gorge themselves with food if you're anything like me uh, this holiday weekend. So a little exercise will do you good. Um, after that, beat the Bezor. Um, after that is the local music show. So lots of great music on the horizon. Keep it locked to 88.3 WCBN FM all day, all night, left end of the dial. Don't even think about changing it. Just break the knob off and throw it away. Recycle it. Recycle it, actually. Okay. Anyway, here is Living Writers with Richard Ford. Thanks for listening. DJ Blackout is signing out. Peace. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Richard Ford is here. Uh, Richard, thank you for joining me here. Great and, pleasure, T. Thank you for letting me come. Oh, well, anytime, anytime. And you're actually, I um, should say, we're taping this this show um, on April 8th, 2011, um, and you were in town. Um, you're going to be giving a reading at the Art Museum, right. um, and also you came to, you've got... Um, a book, Blue Collar, White Collar, No Collar, Stories of Work, uh, which you've edited for 826 Michigan. All exactly. proceeds will go. Exactly, which um, will be published officially, the, uh, I think, the 19th of April, and we had a little reception for it in Ann Arbor uh, yesterday. And um, um, just letting the, the donors and the people who are involved with 826 uh, know that this book exists. And it, it, was, it was done to... Um, it was done to raise money and to and to raise uh, community awareness of eight two six and all of the remarkable things that go on there. Yes, and eight two six is a national organization right. um, to encourage creative writing in youth um, and, and lots of other things too. And I mean, imagination, and imagination, and 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 um, a lot of solving of, of, of childhood problems get uh, gets done in the eight two six. Uh, facilities and you know help with homework and um, sort of you wouldn't want to call it counseling because I don't think anybody would call it counseling but just you know talking to people talking to kids yeah a place a good place for kids to go 
And, and, and date after school. And right. he, and here in Michigan, it's it's a robot supply shop. So it's by it's day. Con- by day. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Who Turns knows? mysterious in the Comes afternoons, along. though, when the kids yeah all show up. Sure. Oh yes. And so now, why? And well, eight two six is national, be, beginning I think in San Francisco. Right. Dave Valencia. Eggers started it um, with with his large S at eight two six Valencia, in in the Bay Area, and then affiliated. Um, uh, um, 826s all over very well, I shouldn't say all over but in various places in, in America and including in Dublin, Ireland where my friend Roddy Doyle uh, runs one I did not know yeah. that they'd gone to Ireland yes oh that's wonderful and you actually you you did a stint at Trinity College in Dublin I am a professor at Trinity College you are still for my sins oh <laughs> Oh, Trinity's a great something's, place, though. Something's got to help you, right? Yeah. <laughs> or all, each of us, <laughs> not just to point fingers, Richard. Oh, Trinity's and, great. Trinity's a wonderful place. Sucked right in the middle of Dublin and um, great old antique university. And and how did you become like? How did you become professor of Trinity College, Dublin? I I I, I hear the incredulity in your voice. No. It's it's, it's <laughs> I, is I, not I, true. Believe me, I am as incredulous as you are. <laughs> One day I went out to the mailbox and opened it up, and there was a letter asking me if I wanted to become a professor at Trinity College. I guess that's just how these things happen. And, and, and I thought, well, gee whiz, I'll just say yes to that because I thought it would be nice to get to go over to Dublin. Um, and so I go over in the spring and in the fall and uh, spend some time with the graduate students. My, my duties are not um, oh, so specified do- and not onerous. And you're doing it currently yeah. then. So Yeah. I mean, I, well, I'm not quite sure if, if anybody knows what's happening currently in, in Ireland, but um, a, as of last fall, I went. Yeah. Wow. So you do it. And, and we were just mentioning before we came on the air how you are also at the University of Mississippi for this year after the passing of your good friend, Barry Hannah. Exactly right. Barry died um, uh, after a long, you know, sometimes I was just reading the other day, some people say, that, you know, you have cancer as he did and and you're described as being valiant and people aren't you know the person was saying well you aren't valiant you just have this disease and and it either gets you or it don't and you have to keep uh, going very honest to god um had a, um, a life force like no other that i knew and uh, and really did just fight it down to the ground and so um uh, frail little vessel that he was um he he fought it and fought it and lots of other things too, and and finally succumbed. And and I realized after he died um, that with his passing, uh, m- of my generation, there weren't any Mississippians uh, who were writers uh, with a with a with a altogether writing life uh, living in the state. And and I mean there are there are some there are plenty of writers living in the state because writing is one of Mississippi's great exports. And um, but I thought well it, maybe what I should do is just pick up and go down there and stay for a while and um, stay as long as I want and um, try to be useful in the state uh, from that little perch up there at Oxford. And so so have you been there this, well, you were in Dublin in the fall. Right. I'm not, so... the, my life is, is hardly charitable. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I try to duck out of as many responsibilities as I can and, and, and try to maximize the ones that I actually seize. And so, uh, you know, I haven't been to Mississippi yet to do this this stint. It begins in the in the dog days of this coming August and, and lasts until the end of the second semester. Well, having been born in Jackson, Mississippi, yes. um, you can you can probably you know 
the summer, the August that you are heading towards. I know you, it. You know it deeply. I know it. <laughs> Uh, it, it brings up serious questions about my sanity, but uh, I, you know, the heart is is the heart. So, yeah. Later, we'll hear about the whole the 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 holes in the heart, the heart's holes. Yeah. Um, from Mark. Yeah. So that'll be coming on deck. Oh, we should mention Jerry maybe Douglas. Briefly. Yes. That, that that wonderful dobro that you heard uh, at the at the top of our conversation was from the great Jerry Douglas. Uh, the best, as far as I'm concerned, for my money, the best dobro player in the world. And have you seen him play? Yeah, yeah. His... Oh. oh, yeah, I have. Um, he's a remarkable guy. He he is the he's the guy who plays uh, behind Alison Krauss when she plays with her band. But he has a, he has a single, um, a solo career as well. But he's a session musician for everybody. I mean, my God, he plays place for everybody and is uh, remarkable truly remarkable it's the composition that we heard um it was even though there was there was this quiet intensity about it it was it was almost as if you could hear the the thinking piece of the music in it somehow it's quite harmonious uh, uh quite melodic uh when when he plays and he, he no easy trick on that instrument to 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 play melodies and 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 to and to play cohesive. What he th- he says it himself. He said it's hard enough to 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 play this instrument behind people singing, but it's much harder to write for this instrument uh, completely intact uh, compositions. He says so. It's not me saying it. No. No one needs to say. Oh, yeah. Ford doesn't know what he's talking about. Ford doesn't know what he's talking about. But Jerry does. Do you play any instruments? Oh, I used to play several instruments, but you know, I not smart enough to do two things at once, and so um, I gave up all of my other affinities when I was twenty-three and started being a writer. Actually, right here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Let's let's talk about. Well, you know what? Maybe I'll read your short bio in the back of of blue collar, white collar, no collar stories of work. Um, just out uh, with Harper Perennial. I guess April nineteenth. It will be. I think out. you've got one in your um, hand, though. I do. It's a it's an artifact. It's right here yeah. in the studio. <laughs> um, yeah. Let's start with this bio and then fill in some of the, okay. the pieces, if you don't mind, Richard. Richard Ford is the author of the story collections Rock Springs, Women with Men, and a Multitude of Sins as well as six novels, among them The Sports Writer, Wildlife, Independence Day, which won both the Pulitzer Prize and the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction, and most recently, The Lay of the Land, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Ford is at work on a new novel and a collection of stories. He lives in Maine and New Orleans and Dublin and Oxford, Mississippi. Uh, well, that, can't live in all those places at once, I guess, but Maine and New Orleans is... It was at least true when I wrote that. Uh, but my my wife um, just left her position as assistant deputy mayor of the city of New Orleans and came came home to me um, on Saturday. In fact, she's been down there for a year. Yeah, being a public official. Yes, because I think in one of the iterations of your bio- biographies that I've read, um, uh, there was a time where you lived. I think on was it Bourbon Street? Eleven thirty nine Bourbon Street. We moved there in 1989 and lived there until, I think, 2001 or two. Then I just got tired of the, the yammer uh, of Bourbon Street, and we moved uptown to Six and Coliseum. And then Ray Nagin became the mayor of New Orleans, and he, being the moron that he was and is, uh, uh, fired my wife. And so then we sold our house and 
we had a place in Maine by then, and we moved up to Maine. Because she had been a city planner before she was the mayor. She got a degree from the University of Michigan, 1976, in uh Urban and regional planning. Okay, and so that's when you you guys were here. So maybe we could fill in some of the pieces because you you came um, up to Michigan State for undergrad. I did from Mississippi, and then and then I <laughs> spun off after that and had various little stints like a stint here, at stints law there. school, yeah, and... a stint in the Marines and a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Um, How long did you stay in the Marines? Oh, Richard? not very long because I got hepatitis and uh, upon being in, and then I then I eventually was discharged uh, before I could go to Vietnam, where I was in t- intended to go. Um, but it was 64, so that's where everybody was going. Yeah. And, um, so in some ways it was so lucky that you got hepatitis then. Well, you might as well say that. Here I am sitting here. Yes. Uh, it, it, yeah. it probably didn't probably feel that if I'd been, you know, If I'd gone where I'd been intended to go, I, might, I would have had a harder time being here now. Uh, a lot yeah. of those guys didn't come back. Not on living writers. That's right. Yes. That's right. Oh, uh, but so glad that you you are here, and I'm so sad that so many didn't. Yeah. Return. Well, you know, of you. Course, it's, it was a thing my generation did. It went to that war, and uh, I think there will always be in me some odd sense that I, uh, as stupid as it sounds, that I that I missed the the great event of my generation by not going over there and getting blown to bits, but. Uh, um, you know, you didn't go. You didn't go. You tried to go. You tried to go. It's, um, well, hard you... to put yourself hard today in like 2011 to put yourself back into the mentality of a 20 year old in 1964. What you thought was important, and we were all going to be drafted anyway. The, the reason I joined the Marines was that uh, I was either going to be drafted or and put anywhere. Put anywhere, and I. Uh, thought I should at least try to exercise some discretion about where I went and how I got there. Yeah, that's the Marines were, you know. Macho challenge to me. Yes, maybe maybe now you would be thinking, oh, Navy SEALs or... Oh, no, I was. I knew then there was no way of... No, that, that's another whole brand of human being from what I was. <laughs> I was just marginally good enough to get in the Marines. Uh, and then um, it's I, I think it's it's interesting that you say that there's that was a, of a time. But I feel like um, young people uh, across the nation, they still almost those, feel those tugs. Maybe it's because a lot of the military recruiters are still going out into rural areas or that's presented as one of the options of how you can mm-hmm. be be someone or be something or, or leave your town or. or... I, well, I'm, I'm probably too old to know what young people feel. Uh, I don't teach. I don't, I'm not around them very much, and so I, I don't seek them out particularly. I don't, uh, and so I, I, I don't. I don't know. But you know, I have a very strong you... impulse to think that that when you get out of high school, you you definitely ought to commit yourself to some kind of public service for the country, women and men alike. And it doesn't have to be military. It could be military if you wanted it to be. Teach but for America. To, it could be. You know, the government. I, I really thought. President Clinton would do something about this, and I, it would seem like something President Bush would have would have done. And I've now I've thought that President Obama would do something about it, but it doesn't seem to be how on anybody's agenda to, to you know to to get out like Israelis do and feel like you owe your country a couple of years of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did it; it didn't hurt me. 
Yes. Worked and- in the Neighborhood Youth Corps, uh, one of those great society programs as a, as a sort of organizer. Yeah. And- Clearing land in the, in the town of Little Rock, Arkansas. Did all that stuff. Where your grandfather lived. Right. And where all my family's from. Oh, I see. Okay. All, everybody in my family but me uh, was from Arkansas. I just happened uh, providentially to be born in Mississippi, um, although because, the rest of them were Arkies. Because that's where your mom and dad were living. That's he, right. he was a traveling salesman, that's right. but that's where you were based. That's right. My father and mother sort of lived a long, wonderful, blissful young life in their car uh, for about 15 years. And finally, when my mother uh, unexpectedly became pregnant, I don't think actually that my parents knew what made people pregnant. And so she found herself pregnant and his boss said Parker you know you're going to have a child now you really need to live somewhere you really need to live maybe in the middle of your traveling territory so he looked at the map and saw that Jackson was the middle of his traveling territory and without knowing really a soul there they moved to Jackson and therefore I am a Mississippian and that's how things go that's actually as far as I'm concerned how things always go we're going to take a short ba- break, and we'll be right back. Um, we'll have more of a conversation today with Richard Ford. Um, his book that's coming out towards the end of April, Blue Collar, White Collar, No Collar, Stories of Work, as edited by Richard Ford. We'll be back. can tell me your troubles, I'll listen for free. Regulars trust me, it seems. You can come and see Uncle to get through the week. Leave your pledges with me to redeem. Some folks sell their bodies for ten bob a go. Politicians go pawning their souls. Doesn't make me look too bad, don't you know? Me with my heart full of holes. All my yesterdays broken, a watch with no face, all battered and old. Bits of the movement all over the place, and a heart full of If you're just tuning in, you've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Richard Ford is here. Um, and thanks to the Liz, Liz Wason for engineering. Um, and that was a great Mark Knopfler. Yes, if Richard. Anybody was wondering. Thanks for picking the songs for the show today. That's a pleasure. And so, and and you, there's um, shows my age, doesn't it? Mark and I are the same age. He's a good pal of mine. Uh, I did a book tour in in um, Germany uh, four years ago. And, we went to every hamlet that there practically is, and when we did the every night, we would do this reading and a little dog and pony act. And um, you and I Mark was, Knopfler? No, oh. but no. We, me, oh. me and Mark Knopfler, we played this. We played this song, and it, I, I love this song so much, I never get tired of hearing it. Um, but he's a yeah, he's a he's a, a bud of mine. 
But but what I'm sorry because I I derailed the Germany story then. So well, there isn't really a, an end to the Germany song uh, story <laughs> except that I played this song every night just in in, in the run up to what we did. Oh, um, okay. Because I was reading I was reading from the Lay of the Land, a novel I wrote and published in Germany in two oh seven, I guess, and um, we just played that. Is is that is that strange when um, the novels had its life here in the states and then it comes out um, maybe a bit a bit later in another country with and there's a translator involved and um, it's to be wished for. There's nothing strange about it. You just you know. Uh, you're just a, a lucky duck if, if if that happens to you. I never went to Europe uh, when I was young, um, and I don't know why. Uh, I guess because, you know, growing up in isolated parochial Mississippi, I really felt like I had the most to learn about my own country. And and even though my family's Irish, um, I, I, I just never went. And so finally in 1985, I was 41, Somebody from London said, would you come over here and give a reading? And I thought, well, this is the way to go. Go on, on the back of your books. So, And then that sort of happened and changed that part of my life. I got to go to Europe then. So you went to London and then after that? To Paris. And, um, and then after that, the books, you know, luckily got translated in, uh, into 30 languages. And so... Um, uh, they've sort of let me go here and there in 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 my life, but but you know I should say to you know eh, Europeans look at American literature um, differently necessarily from the way that Americans look at American literature. They're interested in American literature largely not for the stylistics, but for what it tells them about our culture and sort of curiosity about American life and, rather than literary achievement. And, and and so my books are about America. They're set in America. They essay to be books about American life. And so I think they got taken up for that reason, apart from whatever literary appeal they might have. Uh, it's true. Your books were sort of battling the... Um, the like the the Dallas and the um, the different yeah. <laughs> shows that were over. That's right. Um, that were actually people thought were American life. That's right. I mean, is it so? I mean, the things that I might like about my books probably are if anybody likes them in France or if they like them in Denmark or someplace. Uh, it's probably different from what somebody else would read them for. It's it's also the case that each generation of writers coming along every twenty year period. There are about five or six writers who sort of get plucked up and sort of force-fed into the various European cultures. And, and, and I think I got plucked up a little bit because of Ray Carver, because he was my great pal. And when, when Carver went to, uh, to Europe, he went over there and, and, and told his editors, you know, I've got this friend who's, who I think is a good writer. Would you look at his work? And so, I mean, I sort of got lucky that way uh everybody everybody has the route to whatever luck they have different you had to have the the stories you had to have the novels though well you you have to do the work (laughs) right but there's plenty of great work that gets published and written in america that doesn't have a sensational life abroad and and that's just a roll of the dice really as far as i'm concerned little to do with quality. It's like winning prizes. Uh, Many, many, many wonderful novels get written 
that don't win prizes. I mean, I can think of four or five writers right now who uh, never won anything in their life who I think, you know, wonderful writers. Do you want to name them? Well, we could no, get the I rich. don't because we it'll could... make, them, it'll, 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 it'll make okay. them seem, you know, um, gut shot or or, or it could or, be or the Richard luck. the Richard Ford prizes right here right now living writers <laughs> well somebody wins the Richard Ford prize every day because I buy a book most every day so. you do oh yeah oh good yeah, bless yeah. your cotton socks well somebody has to buy them right <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> You're going to be getting a lot of calls from Pals, Borders, Elliot Babel. Oh, God love them. They're all my. They're all my friends. Believe me, if it weren't for Pals and Borders and the Shaman Drum, all those places like that now gone, I, I oh. wouldn't be in business. It's it's booksellers, particularly independent booksellers, that have that have given me a life and provided me an audience. And and maybe what I've found with with those particular independent bookshops also if if they like you they'll also they they'll keep your books on the shelf <laughs> no matter what out. the trends are they turn them face out yes. so i don't have to do it <laughs> when you're visiting towns go through that's, and that's just right turn the john grisham books upside down and with their face to the back no, i don't do that he's a pal actually he's another he's another homie oh grisham you've you've got so many pals richard ford i'm old you're either going to have a lot of pals or a lot of not pals. That's true. We'll get in the second half. We'll get to the enemies. All right. <laughs> enemies of Richard Ford. No, we'll I, be surfacing. We may not need to go there. It would be too easy. No. <laughs> um, well, to for a moment to think about um, this this latest um, anthology that you've edited. Yes. How did that? But how did you cross paths with Dave Edgar's to do the project? Well, I, I didn't cross paths with Dave. Um, I, I, I crossed paths with 826 Michigan. Uh, they, that's who this, uh, this project was originally um, it, it thinking for Michiganders. or right. Michiga- Michiganians. Ganians, yes. <laughs> I've taught long ago, don't call them Michiganders, as if there was some rare avian thing. It's um, true. It does have a bird-like quality but, to it. <laughs> but Amanda Uli at, at 826 uh, here in Ann Arbor. Uh, she's a friend of the show. She, yeah, she's a... She's a, she's a a friend to many, in fact. Um, she knew I was coming over to East Lansing to do something with Tom McGuane and Jim Harrison, and um, she said, would you happen by just let us show you what we're doing? And uh, I did, and as I said to her last night, I just came in and never left. And she, she was doing, they were doing so many wonderful things at 826 uh, Michigan. I thought, well, what can I do to, you know, to advance your cause? And there isn't very much, turns out, uh, that a you know 65-year-old novelist can do for an up-and-going concern like that. So I thought, well, how about if I figure out an anthology? And, if, and, and so I had, I had this idea floating around in my head called blue-collar, white-collar, no-collar. I just thought it would be a great idea for an anthology of, of stories that have to do either centrally or peripherally with work. And uh, so that's what I did. I found a lot of wonderful writers uh, who I leaned on a little bit, uh, whether they be Michiganians or not, like uh, Jeff Eugenides and um, Elizabeth Strout and um, Toby Wolf and Jhumpa Lahiri and Stu Dybeck and people. A lot of those, as you hear those names, they have some they have some relationship to Michigan. Yes. And so. Um, Nicholas Dobanko. Nick Dobanko, absolutely. In fact, his in Max Apple, uh, Nick Dobanko story was sort of the the centerpiece for doing it. Because um, it's the one, really, it's the one story in the anthology which is about writers at work. 
Yeah, which yes. is a terrific story. And you meant, would you mind reading a, a piece from your introduction, Richard? Uh, well, I'll read the beginning. Uh, it causes me to say the least about it. When I was growing up in Mississippi in the 1940s and 50s, my father worked as a traveling salesman. And you might say my family lived in a world dominated by work. My father had gained his job during the heart of the Depression in 1935 and kept it until his dying day in 1960. It was a source of considerable pride to him, not to mention relief and the sponsor of most of our family's material well-being, that he had one job through the Depression, the World War, and all of the 1950s. His job meant viability to him, to us as well. It meant self-esteem. It meant he was a producer. It suggested important self-knowledge and self-mastery. It implied some hold on good character. It solidified him as a family man. Work, having a job, being employed, making a living became virtually synonymous with its gifts and as such became a virtue in itself. Thanks for reading that, Richard. Well, I realized, you know, that um, as a writer who's making up human beings and writing them on the page and trying to make them plausible, that one of the ways in which, for me, characters become plausible is that I provide the reader with some sense of how they earn a living. Uh, He's a plumber. He's an air plain pilot. When I, when I know that about a character, it begins to be more, the character, more palpable to me, more feasible. And I, and I thought from that little springboard back to my youth, when my father would, and he knew, we, we knew very few people, really, because we lived in Jackson and they didn't know anybody in Jackson. So he knew men on the road. He was a traveling salesman, so laundry starch. But whenever he came home and told us about somebody, it was always, Barney Rozier, he does this. Rex Best, he does that. So what a person did to earn a living was more than just part and parcel of who they were. It was part of their moral makeup, why we revered them, why we were willing to say they were our friend. And 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 something about the moral makeup, not as like a, but not as a judgment, really. Or is that, or is it impl- Implicit to say, because it doesn't seem like a judgy thing when you're saying that. It seems almost no. It was. It's a bona fides. Is what it is. It it, it it meant all the things that I just enumerated in that introduction. It it it, it meant nice that thing. you were a producer. It meant that you had a certain amount of self knowledge. That 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 you knew what you were good at. And the flip side of that, and I think why this book is uh, especially, it seems um, like a tender thing that this was envisioned for uh, Michiganians, is that because so many people in this state, as well as other states across the country, though have been struggling with not having even the option, not Indeed. having an opportunity to. I mean, as long as I've lived in Michigan from 1962 on and in and out through the years, what one knows about Michigan is that it is about jobs. And and when you hear jobs and the job statistics as a way of measuring the national health reported in the public press, it is often uh, with Michigan as its laboratory. Uh, as as things go in Michigan with jobs, so goes the health of the country. So it seemed to me to be uh, apposite that a 
an anthology that's published in Michigan. It means to support Michigan kids be about jobs. We're going to take a short break. Um, Today on Living Writers, Richard Ford, his book, Blue Collar, White Collar, No Collar, Stories of Work. We'll be right back. One, two, three, four. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Richard Ford. Um, and that Rich- was the boss, by the way. That was the boss. <laughs> uh, I think it was, you know, I, my, my, my... <laughs> Talking about work. <laughs> the, the, the Hardest working pers- man. <laughs> the other persona that I have is uh, is, is of a Jerseyite, and um, I, th- I think probably if it weren't... The sports writer, Independence Day, yeah. is this Frank yeah. Buscombe? I think if it weren't for Springsteen, I, I'm sure I would have never written any of those books. Absolutely. Yeah, because he um, made some freehold, uh, so he knows it right in the middle. Uh, he, he he just kind of made it seem possible that you could write a kind of a poetry about a place that is generally considered to be so unpoetic. And now, now these, unfortunately, these uh, reality show nitwits have stolen it back away from us. We have to we have to find a way to wrest it again from their grasp to restore a, a, a bit of poetry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've never seen that. I Me either. I'm afraid to see it. I've I've seen sketches about it on like SNL and different. Yeah. Maybe we we shouldn't be afraid of it, right, Richard? I'm afraid of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that was and and the storytelling quality oh, that yeah. Springsteen just always brings. Wonderful narrator, a wonderful narrator. Yeah. And again, this melodic way of being that's i don't know if it's just the theme for today richard but all the the songs that you've picked it they're all s- melodic in the the foreground and then this some with the storytelling yeah um, they have a kind of an odd melancholy quality too at least at least to my hearing today i i don't think of myself as uh, a melancholy person um uh, more aggressive and bad tempered than anything else but uh uh but those are melancholy songs in a way. But they're so sweet-tempered in a way, too. Yeah. Yes. It's, um, 
Bruce Springsteen was going to going through Youngstown, Ohio, and a friend uh, um, of a friend tells a story. He had a job working at a plant there in the evenings, like maybe keeping it open to a certain time. And he also was a, uh, a radio, like a DJ in morning hours. So he kind of was, had an odd job keeping the factory open at night or hmm. night watchman or so. And Springsteen had played a show and wanted was interested to see it because of Youngstown being a place yes. that had been huge industrial force and um and the the man was uh, viking jim he wasn't meant to let people in ever but he said it's the boss of course i'm going to let you him bet. come in who's not gonna let the boss in well and then so he did and he doesn't regret it but he got fired <laughs> oh he did awful? For that. yeah yeah and i don't know and i i can't doesn't say much for eastern ohio does it no no um and i can't remember now because it was it deep into the night of of um fiddle playing and other things so i can't remember i was like did you ever tell springsteen like i mean i think i think if i'm just trying to remember this in a like a like a happy way i think he's like no i didn't want to tell him i didn't want him to know everything was okay i didn't need that job but you know <laughs> well if you have to give up your job it makes a better story than the job was a job that's true yes talking about work yeah. as we are um and i loved in your intro this is just just one of the best introductions to any anthology I've 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 read in a in a very long time, Richard. Um, just uh, you're just coming, just so alive on the pages here um, as you're starting to frame. That's where I should be. The whole <laughs> if I'm going to be alive, that's where I want to be alive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it must be kind of amazing too, then, to have because here you talk about the choice to become a writer, and then how um, you had this idea of being a writer. Uh, it's I don't know in the late seventies when I was thirty-five. I'm reading from the introduction here, and after writing two novels, each of which brought some credit to me, I was offered a fairly low level, no future teaching job at Princeton. A fact that wasn't so impressive to me, but caused my mother virtually to swoon. Oh, Richard, she rhapsodized. I'm so glad you're finally getting started. Not that I hadn't had jobs before then. I'd had plenty. Being a locomotive switchman on the Missouri Pacific Railroad at age 17. Being a house detective in a bilgy old drummer's hotel in Little Rock. And that wasn't all. But as a working writer, I thought, just really, really lovely. Well, I... Um, God love my mother. She uh, never stood in my way. When I uh, told her that I was thinking that I was going to be a writer, she just gave me a look at, uh, you know, the painting, The Scream. <laughs> um, That's sort of the look she gave me, uh, 1968 in Little Rock. It was raining outside. Um, what did she have? Did she put her hands up to her cheeks as well? Well, she kind or? of did in a way. She said, you are... She said it with that sense of resignation. I said, yes. I said, I failed at everything else. I said, I, this is something I haven't failed at yet. So why not? So existential freedom. Or that's something you felt good about. Well, I'd, well, in a good Augustinian way, you know, feeling good about it was the absence of not feeling bad about it. But something kept you at it. Desperation, fear of failure are... Absolutely, those are the things that kept me at it. I mean, I can I could ascribe to it the highest of possible uh, intentions and motives, but it was just fear of one more failure. I think that kept me at it so assiduously. Yeah. 
and my wife. I mean, uh, the girl I married uh, said to me, look, this is a wonderful idea. You, you know, why on earth she would have said that? I had no evident talent at all. But she said, yes, this is a wonderful idea. You do that. And so we got married in 1968, and we're married today, and, and she still says the same thing. So, I mean, every writer, I think, needs somebody in her or his corner, and she was in mine. And my mother was not not in my corner. She, she just kind of, she read books, but she just kind of looked at me and thought, oh, okay, fine. Um, and I wasn't asking her for money, and I wasn't living at home. Um, I was fairly... Uh, hard working at what I did. That's about all I could be. So uh, she got along with it okay and uh, saw me publish a couple of books before she died, and, and I think that made her happy. And and did you did she read those those novels those My first books. novels? Yes. You know that's a good question. Uh, I only ask because I the maybe there was the racy quality to them. I mean the um, the va 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 voom sort of. Um, I mean all the factors. dirty words. Yes. Lots of sex and. <laughs> Violence. That's what I mean. That wouldn't have stopped her from reading it. She she was she was pretty much rolled with the punches kind of a woman. Uh, I I don't know if she read them or not. Uh, if she didn't read them, I think she wouldn't have read them because she would have been terrified that she would have hated them and then not known what to say. And uh, if she did read them and got to the end of them, I think she would have felt inadequate to know how to say to me that she liked them. I mean, it was kind of a... Because uh, it was more of a high art? like the Was it like not a story but literature that you were making? Well, I... Uh, you know, your parents reading your work always puts them in a terrible position, in a sense. They want to love it, and maybe even, even if they like it, they don't know how exactly to express it to you. And I'm sort of a volatile person anyway. I, I come from a family that's half Osage Indian and half... Uh, Irish, you couldn't have a more volatile uh, upbringing and lineage than that. And I, I think she thought that if she liked my book and said the wrong thing, that it would be tantamount to not liking it, and that I would do what I often do, which is to hit the ceiling. So um, she just kept her counsel about that. Uh, but, but you know, keeping her counsel was okay with me. I mean, I have one cousin uh, from Northwest Arkansas, and the year my first book was published, 1976, um, we went to Christmas, and my cousin Jeanette said, and excuse me for imitating my cousin Jeanette, she said, well, Richard, she said, I read your book. I said, there's a silence. She said, it wasn't a bit good. So I, I'm happy just to not have anybody, you know, no not feedback. say anything. I can, I can with complete equanimity mock my cousins. They're my cousins. Yeah. I love them. Yes. Maybe Cousin Jeanette is listening now. If you are, hello out there. Um, well, I asked because it re when you started to speak about your, your mother, Richard, it reminded me of the, the story about, I think, maybe in the Paris Review about Eudora Welty, like how you had, oh. you met, well... When she had come, when you were at Princeton still, she had come come through and yes, you had a book at did. that point. But you had always felt like she also didn't sort of... She didn't respond right. when I sent her my books. Yeah. Oh, well, you I, sent them? Oh, well, I mean, I had the publisher send them to her. I mean, I wouldn't have... You know, we, we're both Jacksonians, so I grew up about 10 blocks from where she lived. And actually, 
grew up across the street where she was born, uh, and we, we were not acquainted because our families were in different strata. But um, one in Jackson knew who Eudora was, and she actually, I found out only last summer, came to my high school one time and talked to an English class, but I was in the bonehead English class, and she talked to all the good students. But when I published when I published a piece of my heart, I had them send, had Harp and Rose send it to her, and no response, no response. I thought, well, was, she just thought it was a dirty book. She didn't want to read it. So then I published the second book, and no response. I thought, well, she didn't like that either. So I just kind of forgot about it. And, uh, you know, she by that time I thought, well, I'm young, she's old, she just doesn't get it. And uh, but then I was teaching at Princeton in, in, in that job I mentioned that you read, and she, she came to visit the class that I was teaching because I was teaching a class in Southern literature and um, with a man, wonderful man named A. Walton Litz. And, um, and she was there in the class, and I said, I'd never met her before. I said, Miss Welty, I said, um, my name's Richard Ford. I, I teach here, and I, I'm from Jackson. And she sort of looked at me, sort of cocked her head, and she said, is that so, she said. And that's all she said. And so uh, I thought, well, you know, that's strike three as far as I'm concerned. Um, and so I just kind of went on my way. But then that, that must have been about 1979. There was a long silence. And then I published The Sports Writer in 1986. And I went down to Jackson to do a book signing at Lemuria Bookstore. And toward the end of the afternoon, or the two hours I was there, I looked up, and there was Eudora. And so that would have been in 86. She would have been 76 or 77 then. And she walked up to my table, and she said, she had kind of a deep voice. She said, well, she said, I, I just had to come and pay my respects, she said. And, and, and so she sat down at a, at a desk, at the desk where I was, in a chair. And um, we had a great conversation and thereafter became very good friends and all were friends close friends to the end of her life she was a wonder she was she came here she's been here to Ann Arbor well not recently no no she's dead <laughs> yes <laughs> that's yes i couldn't yes but when she was vibrant and traveling around she came to Ann Arbor as well yeah, was she that did. Hmm. It wasn't when I was here. No, I was. It was, it was not the time that, that uh, when I was here in seventy one, seventy six, in, in the Michigan Society of Fellows, and my wife was in graduate school. Donald was here. Donald Hall was here. Oh, so and, that's how you two, because you mentioned him in different yes, interviews. Good, that you're good friends. We're that good he, friends. He changed my life really. Uh, I was living in Chicago, and um, it's kind of a funny story for young writers. Uh, we we were living in Chicago and. Um, one of my teachers in graduate school had nominated me for a fellowship with the Michigan Society of Fellows, which is differently constituted then from now. It was originally intended with the Ford Foundation grant to bring to UM, U of M campus people who wouldn't ordinarily gravitate to such a place. Novelists, for instance. People who didn't have, you know, who, who weren't pursuing degrees, that kind of thing. And... Um, uh, they wrote me and said, would you like to be considered for this fellowship? And I said, yeah. They said, well, we understand you're writing a novel. And I wasn't writing a novel. They said, well, why don't you send us some pages of your novel and we'll consider you. So in, the, in about five days, that 
elapsed between getting the letter and sending something back, I wrote 50 pages of the novel and sent it over to, to, to Michigan, and Donald was the person who read them. And they invited me to come, which changed my life. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll be right back. Um, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Richard Ford. We'll be right back. Scott Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel today on the program. Richard Ford is here. Um, and also, let's see, well, we're going to, Richard, would you mind reading? Mm-hmm. Um, Glad to. This is a story from a, a book of stories I published in 1987 called Rock Springs. And this is the beginning of a story called Optimists. All this that I'm about to tell happened when I was only 15 years old in 1959, the year my parents were divorced, the year when my father killed a man and went to prison for it, the year I left home and school, told a lie about my age to fool the army, and then did not come back. The year, in other words, when life changed for all of us and forever ended, really, in a way none of us could have ever imagined in our most brilliant dreams of life. My father was a man named Roy Brinson, and he worked on the Great Northern Railway in Great Falls, Montana. He was a switch engine fireman, and when he could not hold that job on the seniority list, he worked the extra board as a hostler or as a hostler's helper, shunting engines through the yard onto and off the freight trains that went north and east. He was 37 or 38 years old in 1959, a small, young-appearing man with dark blue eyes. The railroad was a job he liked because it paid high wages and the work was not hard and because you could take off days when you wanted to or even months and have no one to ask you questions. It was a union shop, and there were people who looked out for you when your back was turned. It's a working man's paradise, my father would say, and then laugh. Give some credence to what I I said at the beginning uh, about wanting always, for myself at least, and then for the reader too, 
to know what people do for a living. Uh, I, 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 you can find all kinds of wonderful stories in which the characters' occupations and livelihoods are not known. This isn't a rule I'm propounding. It's just, for me, the thing that you know attaches people to the earth. And how did you choose the story that you included in Blue Collar, White Collar, No Collar, maybe instead of the, this story? Like, I guess, how do you make that decision? Um, because this story... Well, you make all decisions haphazardly. <laughs> <laughs> how do you make your decisions? Do you, Go do you with have a better way than moment? I do? You know, <laughs> <laughs> the, you know the, the plate, like how your dad made the decision for Jackson, put the map down, yeah. put the finger in the middle. You know, for me... All decisions are mistakes that didn't work out. Uh, uh, why did I choose the story uh, under the radar? Uh, because it's short, and because it's my anthology, oh, and so I didn't want—I didn't want to gobble up all the pages for my own story. I—I've I, done lots of anthologies in my life, and I've never ever before included a story of my own. I've done Best American. I've done two, three big Granta anthologies. I always thought that if I was going to be the judge of these other people's work, that I should uh, be disinterested enough not to think that mine belonged in the in the cohort. Although this was for a different, like a good cause. Like this was like you were giving your story for the, the youth. We can say that. I just decided to throw that old logic away. I denied myself enough is what I thought. <laughs> Gave myself a nice cream comp. So be it. As well done. Well done. <laughs> well, in that in that story, um, from the be- from that optimism from the beginning, optimist, of, yeah. optimist. Um, it's you. You're looking. You're looking westward, like this idea of Montana, yes. and and you've lived almost. I feel like so many places in the U.S. Although I'm not sure, did you did you do a stint in Montana or what? Absolutely, you did. What at what point? And is that where you met Jim Harrison? And no, no, I met I met Harrison because uh, Harrison went to Michigan State. Right. You know, there's another college in this. <laughs> oh, is there in the state? Uh, um, I met Harrison in 1975 because I had a book being published, the first one I did. And uh, the editor sent it up to Jim. I didn't know Jim. He was living up in Lake Lelanau. Uh, Such a beautiful yeah, place. And he's from up there. Uh, and he, you know, gave the book a nice endorsement. And I, I sort of happily invited myself up to visit him. And so Christina and I just got in the car and went up to, drove up there and had, you know, spent a couple of nights with him, which was wonderful. But no, the Montana period of my life and you know Jim has just moved to Montana within the last seven or eight years uh, he lived up in uh, uh, up there most of his life I think uh, to be closer to the grandchildren maybe apparently or, so, so who, yeah. who knows why anybody would do that yeah. I don't understand oh. but, uh, <laughs> but he did uh, um, my wife got a job as the head of city planning for the city of Missoula and I was in the midst of writing the sports writer and I said to her we were living in New York she was teaching at NYU I said, well, 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 I I, how am I going to go to Montana, a place I've never been before, so you can have a job and write a book that's set in New Jersey? She said, you make stuff up, make that up. So I went with her to New Jersey, I went to, from New Jersey to, uh, to, to Montana and, and wrote the rest of the sports writer, basically, well, most of it in Montana. Uh, um, occasionally, I would have to go on 
uh, forays back back to the Garden State and go drive around in my rental car reading the landscape into a tape recorder and then take it all back and transcribe it and stick it in the book. But that's okay. You know, you should be able to. I, I, wrote, a, I wrote a novella set in Paris on an airplane once. So, um, well, sometimes it even helps to be apart from the place when you're because of what the imagination aspect of or what's actually deeper than what's on the surface of the place is what you're There's a after. wonderful Richard Hugo essay called Triggering Town. Oh yes. You know that essay. Yes, I do. You know, it's yes. all about that, about how how you have to you have to kind of turn turn your head away from a place to write about it, to change it, to be able to, you know, it's the same with writing about human beings in fiction when you when you try to stick your, you know, your grandpa Earl uh whole cloth into your book all you get is Grandpa Earl. Uh, and so what you really need to do in your writing fiction and writing characters is to, you know, have them mutate and change and and adapt to what happens uh, unexpectedly in the story. So to the extent that you put real people into your books, uh, you're causing yourself some problems. Your ma- trust your imagination in those things is the thing. Pick a little, you know, you know, pick his toupee and the fact that he had a missing index finger and let that be all of Grandpa Earl that finds its way into your story. Because it sounds like that's quite enough of Earl. Pretty yeah. good, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I can that almost cool. see myself. That's right. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> did you did you know Richard Hugo as well then? Dick Hugo died the year I moved to Missoula. He died just before I got there. So I, I was not privileged to know Dick Hugo, but I know know his poems very well. Yeah, because he built that writing program there. Yes, really. he did. Yeah. Yes, he did. He and Bill Kittredge. Yes. Yeah. Who's still there. Yes. Mm-mm. He's still living yes. in Missoula. Yes. Yes. Yep. And... And then James Welsh too. Did you did you know him? I knew Jim Welsh. I when we lived in Missoula, which was from 1983, off and on until 1989. Uh, wow, so there that's was quite a big a, chunk. Quite a coterie of writers around there: Jim Welsh, uh, uh, Jim Crumley, Max Crawford. Uh, McGuane lived over in the in Kit Kittridge, and McGuane lived over in the middle of the state. And uh, Bill Yortsberg, uh, whole lots of writers in Missoula. All many, most of them really good writers. John Jackson from from Northern Michigan. Um, yeah. So what a great. So, but it seems like um, Montana at the time, even though you weren't maybe, or maybe you were starting to write some of the short stories them all while you were there. Oh, you I wrote did. All those, I wrote all those stories in Rock Springs, interstitially, and uh, and during the period I was writing. Uh, it makes, it makes it sound like a heroic effort. It, it wasn't. It, I just wrote those stories between stints of writing the sports writer. Yeah. And it said in, I think, the, your Paris Review interview that you wrote short stories so you'd have something new to read each That's year right. when you went. It's that. Yeah, well, it was, it was true of some of the stories in Rock Springs that people would ask me to come give readings. And when you're in the midst of writing a novel, it, the, you don't know all of the pieces that you really want to read unless you're very lucky. And I wasn't lucky with that book. And mostly I don't read out of the sports writer. Uh, books can be really good and not have anything to offer to, for public readings. I mean, Eudora used to read the same stories over and over again. She used to read Why I Live at the P.O., Powerhouse, um, Item of Toy, Three, she had about five party pieces that she typically read but because she just didn't feel like the other stories, either they were too long or that the sentences were too in, too involved. They just didn't lend themselves. And likewise with, with novels. Novels don't always pop right out and give you something to read in public. So I thought, well, then I'll write some stories which will be short enough and they will be in a kind of a laconic style which will let me read them, read them with some ease. And it seems like, and, and writing the, so moving between the, the novel genre and then the short story, you could do it with 
some, well, I don't want to say with some ease. That sounds presumptuous, but you are good at it. Writing, writing isn't hard. If it was that hard, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be doing it. Uh, uh, you know, you, writing is you hard. Can get all involved. <laughs> Let's have an you argument. Get all involved in the difficulty of, of 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 what you do. You know, the fact that you write novels and stories. Gee, how, it's just it's monkeys do these things. You know, look, look look at the books around that monkeys do actually successfully write. Uh, so, you know, that's, <laughs> let's don't get all grave about being able to write stories. I mean. Someone once told me a monkey could do the microbrewing that you're doing. And I was like, hey, thanks a lot. I'm still trying to get the hang of it. <laughs> well, But your short stories, I mean, and there's a monkey in Rock Springs, yes, there the is. title story. That is. I was born in the year of the monkey, someone told me not long ago. I didn't know that because I don't know what any of those things mean. But monkeys do turn up in my life all, all the time. Have you had a monkey? No. Not on your, not, not yet. Not on your back. Not yet. <laughs> no. Because <laughs> that, that was like a strange little monkey that came in so sad. He um, just came in to die. You know, it's just, there's, a wonderful, there's a wonderful poem by Lawrence Robb about it. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday the 6th of July 2011. In San Francisco, I'm Danny Wood. Coming up on the newscast... The Obama administration changes a long-standing policy on U.S. military suicides. Steps like this, in a small way, do get rid of the stigma to a degree, and that stigma is a big, is a big part of the problem that hasn't been addressed properly. In Senegal, the public grows angrier at President Wad's attempts to extend his political term beyond that allowed by the Constitution. And we look at a campaign by LGBT activists in the Philippines who are pushing for equal rights. Those stories and more, but first, this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for Free Speech Radio News. Rebel fighters in Libya are slowly making their way to the capital, attempting to overtake government-controlled towns along the way. Today, at least one Gaddafi-controlled town was captured by the fighters. Rebel commander Ibrahim Madani spoke to Al Jazeera. Our place is, you know, the main place is Tripoli. We, we, want, we are going to Tripoli, but we are taking it step by step. At NATO's monthly press briefing, Secretary General Anders Fohm Rasmussen was on the defensive, touting the military operation in Libya as necessary. Because without NATO, there would be a massacre. Gaddafi would be free to use his tanks and missiles on towns and markets. He says NATO's work has prevented towns like Misrata and others in the western mountains from being overrun by government forces. Momentum is against Gaddafi. His economic